Kyle, I wasn't ready. I, I thought we were still singing. One of these Sundays in the future, I'm going to stand up here without being emotional. Now, I don't know at what point that is going to be, but at some point it, it'll arrive. Uh, every Sunday seems to be like a reunion, and uh, this Sunday is, is no exception. Uh, Mike and uh, Charlotte Bishop are here, and Mike was the youth minister at Lamar Avenue before I was. And last uh, February, uh, Delma Gibbs' aunt, Maddie Young, who was a 50-year member of the Mayfair Church of Christ in Oklahoma City, uh, where I have been, uh, passed away. And so Delma and his family uh, were in Oklahoma City for that service. Joe, Delma's son, uh, was there. So I went up and I said, Joe, do you remember who I am? And he said, you used to be the youth minister at Lamar Avenue. And I said, you're right. He said, you're Mike Bishop. I told Mike that story this morning, and uh, Mike said, oh, you're not nearly as good looking as I am. <laughs> so it's good to see Mike and kind of reconnect uh, with him. Uh, David and Jan Clanton are with us this morning. David and Jan are members from Mayfair. Uh, David and Jan, where are you? They're right here. Uh, David was on staff uh, when I began uh, to work at uh, Mayfair, and it's good to see them. Uh, came down, uh, I met uh, another group from Mayfair up in Hugo for lunch yesterday, and David and Jen came on down and spent the night, and I think we're gonna go to lunch here in, in a little bit. And it's good to see uh, David and Jen, wonderful people, such encouragers uh, for me when I was uh, at Mayfair. And, so I value uh, their, their friendship as well. And then Ken and Mary Prunty are here uh, this morning. Ken is James Prunty's brother. They also are from Mansfield, and we knew uh, all the Pruntys uh, when we were uh, in Mansfield, Texas from 1997 to 1999. Mary helped us to find a home and then sold our home when we moved uh, to Oklahoma City. And one of the, the, the pleasant memories about being in Mansfield for those three years would have to be visiting Mary's dad, Brother Ken Cade. And I've kind of, you know, I've kind of let it known that I like my coffee really dark and black and bold. Brother Kincaid is the reason for that. When we would go visit him, uh, and, and you couldn't tell him no, he would serve a honey bun with a half a stick of butter on it. I know I'd be living a lot longer if I hadn't made those visits, but anyway. And the coffee, you could stand your spoon up in it. And so that's, that's why I, I enjoy really dark, black, bold uh, coffee uh, today. But anyway, it's, it's another Sunday morning. Uh, we come together as a family uh, to worship our, our God. And 
uh, to fellowship with one another and encourage each other. And again, it's just a, a blessing uh, to be here uh, today. This morning, we're going to conclude our study of Ephesians chapter 4. And I remembered to get the remote out of the podium today. And <laughs> you're going to have to do it for me, I guess. Did I do that? All right, well. Wednesday night, I didn't even know how to turn the lights on in the auditorium. I had to have an orientation from Doug uh, to learn how to turn the lights on. I didn't even remember how to do that. So I'm eventually uh, going to get there. You, you can see, church, you don't have a whole lot to work with here. Uh, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to struggle through this, and we're going we're gonna to get there. Uh, so if you have your New Testament, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And for my first four sermons, kind of officially, uh, here at Lamar Avenue, we have been focusing on uh, the middle prong, as I have called it, of our vision statement, the unity of believers. And I've tried to emphasize that the unity of believers, it has to begin with us right here in our own congregation and in our own family. And so this morning, we'll conclude uh, this, this brief study uh, by looking at Ephesians 4, verses 17 uh, through 32. But I want to begin with this quote. It's from John Golden Gay. In the third volume of his commentary on Psalms, he writes this. The most spectacularly unanswered prayer in world history is Jesus' prayer in John 17, 20 through 23. That's the text Clay read for us earlier this morning. Christian kinfolk live in breathtaking disharmony. This devastates their witness as it removes the goodness and the loveliness from them. It removes their joy and surrenders their blessing. Now, this quote occurs as Golden Gay's concluding comments of Psalm 133. And this is a psalm we're all familiar with. It's a very short psalm, song that is attributed to David. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. How beautiful it is for God's people to live in unity. Golden Gay makes the point that God's people literally is siblings, brothers and sisters. That's why he chooses to use the word kinfolk. The word kinfolk is a word that we used to use in Pontotoc County, Oklahoma. You probably use it here in Lamar County as well. We're family. That's, that's the point. 
Right? We're brothers and sisters. We're, we're siblings because uh, of a common bond in Jesus. And David emphasizes how beautiful it is when kinfolk get along. When brothers and sisters, when family are able to live together. And through this unity, God bestows his blessings upon us. Now, we're probably not familiar with the metaphors of oil dripping down a beard or dew from Mount Hermon. But they are are metaphors that uh, people in Israel would certainly relate to. Both of those metaphors, wonderful images of abundance, of God's blessing His people. Thus, the importance of unity. The purpose of Ephesians 4, as we have seen, is to demonstrate that the church is to be a community. Or to use the language of David in Psalm 133, family, kinfolk, because we are brothers and sisters. Ephesians 4, Paul has shown us, has a workable formula for unity. And we can become, by following that formula, what God desires the Lord's church uh, to be. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul argues that Christians exist not to create unity, but to confess it. And it is maintained by Jesus-like behavior. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, Paul asserts that unity not only arises from how we behave, but also from what we believe. In last week, in verses uh, 7 through 16 of chapter 4, we read where Paul advocates that unity is built through the diversity and distribution and use of Christ-given gifts to every one of us, to every Christian. And so this morning, we'll conclude our study by looking at verses 17 through 32, where Paul affirms that unity is fostered by healthy relationships. Now, the crux of this morning's lesson occurs in verses 25 through 32. But in verses 17 through 24, Paul has a reminder for his readers. And he seems to be especially addressing those Gentiles who were a part of the Ephesian church reminding them of their former way of life, a very pagan way of life, before they accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so he's reminding them of their conversion, and I think he's simply saying, don't forget who you are. And he does this in two ways. First of all, he spends just a few verses reminding them of their old life of futility as Gentile unbelievers. 
And he talks about how they simply kind of went along with the crowd in verse 17 and how they had kind of lost their minds. Uh, their minds were fu full of uh, futility. He talks about how alienated they were from their creator. And in verse 19, uh, he, he says they had a, a, an eye condition. They were guilty of being indifferent immoral and indulgent in that pagan way of life. But he's reminding them, okay, that's, that's your old life, that's your former life. And then he reminds them of this new life they have experienced of faith. Let's begin reading with verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Right? Paul uses language that really speaks of discipleship. Uh, in verse 20, the NIV chooses the word learned. It's the verb form of the word disciple, a word that we find quite regularly in the Gospels. And a disciple is a learner, a, a student. And so because of what they have heard about Jesus, what they have been taught about Jesus, what they have learned about Jesus, and hence have responded to Jesus, they now have this new life. And, it, and Jesus is, is the bond, the common bond that brings them together as kinfolk, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And now they're this family. Now they are this uh, community. And so before Paul concludes this chapter in this emphasis upon unity, he reminds them once again of their former way of life but who they are now. And because of who they are now, there is a certain way to treat each other. And so here's the way I want to, to transition uh, into verses 25 through 32. Do you know the number one reason people give for being a part of a church? Now, you're probably like me. You're, you're thinking, well, it's the preacher, right? I was so disappointed when studies show it's not the preacher. It's relationships. All right? now, now, think about that for just a moment, okay? I, you know, I'd like to think you'd like the preacher and the preaching, you know, and the worship and... Your involvement in various ministries uh, here at Lamar Avenue. But it, it's, it's relationships, at least one study suggests. And so as we continue through uh, the end of chapter 4, Paul is going to list some vices and some virtues right, that either destroy or enhance relationships. And again, the values, of course, or the virtues, 
create this atmosphere in which unity can exist. And remember, we're not the ones that create unity. The Holy Spirit does that. Chapter 4, verse 3. It is our responsibility to maintain it, to build upon it, and to enhance it. So let's read verses 25 through 32, and then I'm going to go back, and I've, I have found, at least my way of counting, about nine vices, and then I think there are six uh, virtues that Paul lists, and we'll briefly discuss these, and then we'll conclude this short series of sermons on the unity of believers by making five suggestions or five ways we might apply not only this text, but really the entire uh, chapter. Verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down uh, in, on you while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. All right. Uh, at least the way I count, nine vices that Paul lists here, and this isn't meant to be an exhaustive kind of list, but things that certainly can disrupt unity and can disrupt relationships. He mentions falsehood, anger, stealing, unwholesome talk, bitterness, rage, which, which might be that initial explosion of anger. Brawling, the NIV reads. Uh, some of the older English translations use the word clamor. The word is literally shouting. And so the idea is of, of two uh, individuals shouting at each other. And the anger and the rage escalate until, before you know it, they're no longer shouting, they're brawling, they're fighting. Slander, which is literally the word blasphemous, and then malice. And again, P Paul could have listed probably nine more vices that disrupt relationships and can create, create havoc within a family. But he does list these, and, he, and again, he reminds these Christians of their former way of life, and this these are, might have been some of the, the things they were guilty of in their old way of life, but now that they have become a Christian and they've put on Christ, they are to put these things away. Shelve them, if you will. Never to go back to those attitudes and types of behaviors. But he also lists some virtues or some values, we might say, Christ-like attitudes that are opposite 
of the vices that he lists that enhance community, that will build relationships, and will help the body of Christ maintain this unity that the Holy Spirit creates. And I count six. Speaking the truth to each other. Working with each other. And rather there being unwholesome talk, there being helpful talk. And Paul helps us understand what helpful talk is by telling us it's the kind of talk that builds each other up and the kind of talk that is beneficial. And the word uh, benefit there is literally uh, to give grace. That we talk to one another in such a way that we are giving grace to each other. So what might be some types of graceful talk? Talk that is full of grace. Words of encouragement. Words of kindness. Uh, words in which uh, are helpful. Again, beneficial, good to us. Number four, he mentions kindness. Uh, the fifth value, he mentions compassion. Uh, we're going to talk more about the word compassion uh, tonight when we study the, the parable of the, the prodigal son in, in Luke 15. Uh, this word is an intensified form of the word compassion that we find in the Gospels. And it is, a, it is a word, it's one of my favorite words in all the New Testament because of its etymology, and we'll get into that more tonight. There is my commercial for being back tonight at, at 6. But, but the word compassion, right, it, it describes an emotion which comes from deep within you, okay? And uh, we, we often speak of, of some of our emotions, right, uh, in reference to, to our vital organs. You know, we love someone with all of our heart, okay? And when we get nervous, we have a knot in our stomach, all right? That's, that's the idea. So we're talking about an emotion that comes from deep within us. But it's more than just an emotion. It is so strong and so powerful, it moves us to respond. That's why we'll... Well, no, I can't make this point because I'm going to make the point tonight. And if I make the point this morning, you might not come back tonight, all right? So you're going to have to come back tonight to hear about Jesus in compassion. Right? But the point is it, is, it is a word, okay, that again builds unity. And then finally, uh, forgiving each other. What, is, what such an important value, such an important Christ-like attitude if we are to maintain harmony and unity within the body of Christ, again, that the Holy Spirit uh, creates. Embedded, did, did you hear verse 30? Em embedded in the midst of this, Paul kind of has a subtle reminder about the Holy Spirit and the importance of maintaining this unity that he has told us in chapter 4, verse 3, the Holy Spirit uh, is responsible for when we don't treat each other right, when we're not acting like kinfolk, it hurts, it grieves the Holy Spirit. 
different. And so again, the importance of being unified as a body. So, five ways, thank you, uh, five ways that we can apply, not just our text this morning, but really kind of a summary of all of, of chapter four. Number one, our identity is found in Jesus. Now, even though we only covered chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, even within chapter 4, if you go back and, and reread it, over and over again you find in Christ, in Jesus, and that is something Paul does throughout this letter. I mean, in these six chapters, it is just full of the importance of being in Christ. Right? And so our identity... And you know, as, as individuals, uh, we, we can be identified any number of ways. Political party affiliation, address, social security number, where we live, I mean, what we do for a living, what our educational level is, um, our, our favorite sports teams. I mean, we can identify our ways in, in any number of possibilities, but first and foremost, our identity is found in Jesus. And it's because of being baptized into his name that we are kinfolk. We are brothers and sisters, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings us together. That is the common bond. And because of that, number two then, Jesus becomes our example. And so when we need a model, when we need a perfect mentor, we look to Jesus. In Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians 2 is probably the best place uh, to go to. And in verses 6 through 11, there is this beautiful, almost poetic uh, description of, of Jesus uh, by Paul. And in Philippians 2, in that text, as he talks about uh, the humility of, of Jesus and Jesus being our example, he makes three points. Jesus has abandoned his rights and Jesus did it not only once but twice. He abandoned his rights as deity by leaving heaven and coming to earth in obedience to the Father. And he also abandoned his rights as a human being. I, I mean, he gave up his right to live, to die for us. But he also accepted servanthood. You know, within that text of, of Philippians 2, Paul really emphasizes Jesus being a servant. And if Jesus can be a servant, then so can we. So should we as we follow his example. And then finally, Jesus assumed responsibility. It's, it's so easy within the body of Christ, and particularly in a, in a local uh, context, to, to just assume somebody else will do it. it you know, I'm, I'm a little guilty of that. You know, Wednesday night I kept thinking, well, somebody else will turn the lights on, and then I thought, well, I'll go turn them on, and then I couldn't do it. You know, and Doug, Doug showed up and helped me. But just assume some responsibility. And, and again, particularly in the context of building unity, of maintaining unity, of enhancing relationships right here in the body of, of Christ. Number three, unity 
is maintained by a commitment to one another. A commitment to one another. Uh, three times, three times in chapter 4, Paul uses this phrase, one another, or some translations say, each other. It's only one Greek word, alelon, and it's used over 50 times in the New Testament. It's a wonderful study just to go look at all the one another passages in the New Testament. And again, Paul uses the word three times in chapter 4. And, and again, I, I think it's kind of a subtle way in which Paul is emphasizing unity in building relationships. Because what, what does one another or each other suggest? It, it, it suggests a reciprocal relationship. All right? I encourage you, you encourage me. You forgive me, I forgive you. We don't complain against each other. That's Romans 12. I mean, the, the list again, about, about 50 times this word is used. Right? And so how might we be better committed to one another? Very quickly, three ways. A refusal to provoke one another. This portion of our lesson brought to us by the letters R and P. But just refuse to provoke each other. And, and here's, <laughs> you know, here's kind of the funny thing, we know how to provoke each other, don't we? I mean, we know what the hot buttons are, and we know how we can kind of prod uh, each, each other. I, I, really thought, I really thought some of you ladies would be provoked this morning because we had a wedding here yesterday. You know, Bailey Cannon was married, and all of the quilts and the blankets and the pillows are back there on the chairs, all right? And I'm, I'm pretty proud. No one seems to be provoked by that. Is it not as cold in here this morning? Is, it, is that what it is, all right? But, but refusing to provoke each other. Number two, respond to each other by providing, providing, okay? And again, if relationships are what they should be, what we know when someone has a need. And, and rather than waiting for the person to maybe ask, because some never will, okay? Some of us will never ask. But again, assuming responsibility, all right? Taking our own initiative to provide and to serve. And then number three, resolving to protect each other. Right? Whether it be physically, emotionally, Spiritually, one way we can protect each other is not talking about each other. Or if we're out in, in, in the community and some, we overhear someone talking about one of us, being quick to respond and protect. All right. Again, really keen on reciprocal relationships and what it means to be committed to one another. Number four. Because we're a part of the family of God and because we have this common bond in, in Jesus, we wear the same uniform, which is to say we are on the same team, right? And, and some of us, I, I mean, some of us can remember the first time we ever put on a uniform, right? Man, I used to sleep in my Little League uniform. 
you know, and, and I, think, I think Luke was four years old before we moved to Tulsa. And I, I could not wait for the first time he could compete and put on a uniform. And uh, at four in, in those days here in Paris, you could play soccer. And he, we signed him up. And I think he did sleep in his uniform, you know. There's something about being in a uniform. Well, well think about it. Paul, not just in Ephesians, but in other places, talks about putting on Christ. He, you know, he says in Galatians 3, for all of you who have been baptized into Jesus, have put on Jesus. Right. So symbolically, we've, we've put on this uniform. We all wear the same uniform. We're all a part of the same team. All right. Now, you might remember, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. But when we lived in Mansfield, those three summers, Cardinals weren't very good, and the Rangers were. And so I kind of became a Ranger fan, and uh, from my driveway to the ballpark, I could be there in 18 minutes. And I love baseball, and so we, we kind of became Ranger fans those, those three years. In one spring, before the season began, they had this big open house at the ballpark. So I load Luke and Taylor up, and we go, and they let you run the bases and let you catch fly balls in the outfield, and you get to tour the stadium. But one of the cool things was walking into the Rangers' dressing room, their clubhouse. And, you know, there was Pudge's locker, and Juan Gonzalez, and Kenny Rogers, the baseball player, and Rusty Greer, and, and, and all, all those great Rangers from the 90s. But there was a big sign, there was a big sign, in front of the clubhouse door, right? and it was an acrostic. It spelled out the word team, and then it had the meaning of team. Together, everyone accomplishes more. Isn't that right? I mean, when we work together, when we are a unified body of believers, right? we can accomplish so much more through the power of the Spirit who lives within us, uh, to the glory of God, and through the power of the resurrection of our Lord. Right. So we're, we're a team, okay? And, and together, we can accomplish so much more as God opens up doors of opportunity here in this community and even beyond. And then number five, the quality of our lives is to radiate into the world and attract others to Jesus. Jesus says some, some of the last words he ever spoke to his disciples before his death. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 record those words. And in John chapter 13 we find one of those passages of Scripture where we see this little phrase, one another, you, several times. And he says to love one another. And he goes on to say that by the way you love one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. The point of that 
of that statement is this. Have you ever thought about one of the most powerful evangelistic things we can do is simply to love one another? There is so much division and discord and hurt in this world Communities fractured over any number of things. And as the body of Christ, we can be, according to Jesus, and that's a pretty good authority, we can be a powerful testimony to the world. In, in our lives together, you know, if we're truly unified and we're truly one, uh, loving one another, he says, the world will know that you are my disciples and that you can have this powerful impact upon the world. The unity of the church is essential to God's eternal purpose. Unity must be cherished and cultivated. Again, the unity of believers is the second prong of our vision statement. Our unity must be visible and demonstrated to the world and especially to the city of Paris. What does the city of Paris see? What comes to their mind when they drive by our facility here on Lamar Avenue? When, when, they, when they see us in the community at Walmarts, McDonald's, the grocery store, a ball game, the park, at work, at play, wherever. What do they think of? Because of Ephesians 4, one thing I hope they think of is how much those people love each other and how unified they are. That doesn't mean we're not going to squabble from time to time. And it doesn't mean that we agree on everything. But it does mean we are family. And we're kinfolk. And how wonderful that is in the sight of God. So I guess as we conclude this short series of sermons on unity... I think the question that I would want each of us to ask is this. How am I living, and in what way am I living, that nurtures and builds and maintains this unity? Is there someone I need to forgive? Is there someone I haven't been as kind to? Is, is there someone I've, I've provoked, and maybe even intentionally? Is there someone that, that I can just love a little more? Is, is there someone that I can speak words of grace to? Is there someone I can encourage? And so as we continue this journey together, let's be unified. Let's be kinfolk. Let's be brothers and sisters. Let's be a family and a powerful witness to our community. Let's stand and sing.